just one last announcement we have, uh, with the Peru trip. We uh, thought the deadline to sign up for the Peru trip was a few weeks ago. Now, this isn't one of those, like, marketing scams which keep on extending de- deadlines. Because we, um, we wound up purchasing a group rate, the great thing about that is you can just throw seats in it without names of people. But uh, the deadline, the real deadline is May 6th. So we already have uh, 21 or 22 people going if you'd like to, to join us. Uh, going to Peru, August 6th through 14th, the uh, price is going to be about $900. Uh, we have that meeting next week. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Please rise for the reading of God's Word. If you need a Bible, please raise your hand. A couple Bibles here. Temperature right in here? Guys, hot, cold, just right? Just right? You're not just saying that to be nice, are you? I think it's a little warm. You see? I have some honest, honest people over here. Okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 8. This is the Apostle Paul by the Holy Spirit. Verse 1. Now concerning things offered to idols... We know that we all have knowledge, but knowledge puffs up and edifies. And if anyone thinks he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and there is no other God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. However, there is not in everyone that knowledge. For some, with consciousness of the idol, Until now, eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. But beware, lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you have knowledge eating in an idol's temple... Will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And because of your knowledge, shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Let's pray. Father, we just pray this morning that you would just open up, Lord God, your heart, that we can get a glimpse of, Lord, of what the end of our faith is, love. God, we want to be as a people who love, Lord, not sacrificing truth, not sacrificing doctrine or theology, Lord, but God, we we want to be as people filled with your word, people who allow your word to dwell richly through them, but people who, Lord, the outgrowing of that all 
is love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, you may be seated. So we're going through the Apostle Paul's... Am I set up right up here? Okay. I, I think I, I'm sounding a little... I'm not sounding... I'm sounding okay. We're going through the Apostle Paul's letter to the Corinthian church, and Paul had himself started up this church in Corinth, and he probably, probably about seven or eight years prior to the time this letter is written. And uh, in Acts chapter 18, it, it tells that story of when the church was started. He came to uh, Corinth, and he went right to the synagogue. And Paul was Jewish. Jews worshipped in synagogues. And uh, each Sabbath, they read from the law and the prophets. And uh, it was their practice to invite visiting rabbis uh, to, the, the, to, to speak and to read from the law and the prof, uh, prophets. So it's not too difficult uh, to understand that um, Paul made a beeline to the synagogue when he entered the city. He had news. He had news that the Jews had been waiting for for hundreds of years. Uh, he, he was only too happy to be the messenger of that news. Uh, men and women of Corinth, uh, I have some incredible news for you. The waiting is over. The Messiah, which you have longed for, the Messiah who you have read about each Sabbath, week after week. He has come just the way the law and the prophets said he would. He died just like the, uh, the law and the prophets said he would die. He, he rose from the dead just as the, the law and the prophets said he would. And uh, just as the law and the prophets said, uh, he uh, appeared to many witnesses and then was ascended into heaven. And he spoke to me to come to you and deliver this news, this news that you have been waiting for for uh, hundreds of years. Proverbs 25, 25 says, So as cold water to a weary soul, so is a good news from a far country. And Paul, he wanted to be the bearer of that good news. The bearer of that good news. And uh, I'm sure each time uh, that he went into a synagogue, because that was his practice as he went into each uh, city, his hope and his expectation were high. Uh, you know, how could they fail to receive this news with rejoicing? It's just so clear. Uh, Jesus fits the description of the Messiah to the T, and, and everything that was said about the Messiah and the law and the prophets of Moses, all 200 uh, plus prophecies, and, and just the, the law of Moses, it, it, it's so specific with the tabernacle and the temple and, and the high priest, and such a picture and a foreshadowing of the Messiah. Jesus fits the description uh, of it all. But they rejected the message. They rejected it. The Jews at the synagogue in Corinth rejected the message. So, but Paul, I was thinking about this, Paul found himself in very good company. I was recently reading through Luke chapter 4. It's such an amazing uh, story where Jesus went into the synagogue in his hometown. He's already really well known by this time, about a year into his ministry. He goes into Nazareth. And what I would have due to have been a fly on this wall. He, it says in Luke 4, verse 16, that he went into the front of the synagogue. He got up and he went to the front. Someone handed him the book of the law and the prophets. Actually, they handed him the, 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 uh, the prophet Isaiah. 
he opened up to Isaiah uh, chapter 49, which every Jew knows and knew at the time was a description of the Messiah, and he began to read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And after he finished those words, he closed the book, he gave it back to the man who had handed it to him, and he sat down. And then it says in Luke chapter 4, verse 20, it says that all the eyes of the people of the synagogue were just fixed on him, wondering what was going to happen next. And he said, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Wow. But they rejected the message. They rejected the message. Uh, And not only that, uh, they rose up and they thrust him out of the city. They brought him to the edge of a cliff and they wanted to throw him off. It says he just walked right through the crowd. And he went on to the next city and then the city after that, anywhere where there were people seeking him. So Paul found himself in good company when he was in Corinth. He was rejected at the synagogue. And he had not been thrust out of the city, but he was sort of thrust out of the, uh, the synagogue. But it was not Paul's calling to go to the next city. It was his calling. He had been called by God to stay with it, stick there. And present the good news to the rest of the city. So he's, you can imagine this, he's kicked out of the synagogue. And, and you know, what he was faced with, with a guy like Paul, it had to have just been phenomenally scary. I mean, Corinth was just like a monster of a city. It was a, just a monster to a guy like Paul. 500,000 people, that's just an enormous city for uh, that time. And uh, the, not only were 500,000 people, they were 500,000 people who knew nothing about the Lord. All the Corinthians knew were idols, idols. And, and, and that's all they knew, false gods. And, and though, as we just read, the idols themselves were nothing, chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians uh, uh, chapter 8 says that behind each idol there was a demon. In other words, there was an enormous amount of demonic activity around each idol, drawing people in uh, to the worship. So he's removed from the synagogue. He's faced with these people. All they knew were about dead idols. They knew nothing about the living God. And so much of, uh, of their economy uh, itself was, was about idols. And, and, and after he was removed, he's, so he's facing the city. It's also known throughout the world as, as a place uh, where people went to to binge out on sex. At the time, there was an expression, to live like a Corinthian was to sort of uh, throw off your sexual inhibitions and just sort of go for it. This is what Corinth was known for. It was, had such a notorious reputation, even the, uh, even the Romans used to warn each other about going there. They were also known as a, for their cruelty. So Paul's facing all this, and it says in Acts chapter 18 that he feared. 
He feared. He, he feared, you know, when he what considered what was before him. And the Lord's going to bring each of you to this place too. Where he, he's going to put before you a path that he wants you to walk in. And man, you're going you're gonna to fear. And it says that the, the Lord appeared to him and, and said, Paul, do not fear for I am drawing many in this city to you. What an encouragement that is. Uh, to those of us who live in and around this city, a city known throughout the world, <laughs> whether we like it or not, known through internationally renowned as a, as a city filled with universities who oppose the things of God, who, which mock God, which fight God and the people of God. So easy to get drawn into fear, sort of huddle up in our little churches, Ooh, all those wicked people out there, you know, we better, you know, find a cave or whatever. And, and, and so, uh, and, 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 you know, we need to take courage. God is drawing many people in this city to himself. So a church born in the most unlikely place, Corinth, uh, it says in chapter 6, uh, the Corinthians, including uh, uh, this incredible description, idolaters, sodomites, thieves, revilers, or mockers, uh, revilers, a mocker, drawn into this church. It's just an amazing work of God. And he stays at the, with the church for a few years, then he left to the city of Ephesus, and uh, he left their elders and deacons with the church in Corinth. But listen, leading a church in Corinth was not an easy thing. I mean, you know, when you have people coming out of all that weirdness, all kinds of strange issues come up. That's why it's so important to have a spirit-led ministry. You can't possibly have uh, a list of rules to cover all the bizarre things that happen. And, and, and so uh, uh, in chapter 7, verse 1, uh, he, 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 what happens is that they write him a letter with a bunch of questions. He's in Ephesus. And hence the reason for verse 1 of chapter 7, now concerning the things which you wrote uh, to me of. And so uh, he is uh, responding to questions and they don't hold back. They ask him all kinds of questions. Well, you know, now that I'm a Christian, uh, should I get married? If I'm married, should I have sex with my wife? You know, all kinds, real, a lot of confusion. Whenever there's sexual weirdness and, and, and sexual extremes, there's, it's going to be difficult for people to come out of that lifestyle into a normal man woman relationship. So they also ask, how often should I have uh, sex with, with my husband or my wife? And, and, and if I'm married to an unbeliever, should I divorce her? What if my husband abandons me? Uh, what if I'm a slave? Do I demand my freedom? What if I'm uh, uncircumcised? Do I go out and get circumcised? All these questions, he's answering in chapter 8. And um, in chapter, uh, rather in chapter 7, then in chapter 8, he comes to a new question. It says in verse 1, now concerning things offered to idols. Now, we may look at something like that and think, oh, that has nothing to do with 2007, actually. It has everything to do with 2007, as we will see. But what does he mean by that? Well, as I mentioned earlier, Corinth was filled with idols, Zeus, Apollos, Aphrodite, Diana, these, uh, and there were temples uh, to these idols, and, and people would bring meat offerings uh, to these temples. And, uh, you know, goats and... Uh, uh, cows and, 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 and sheep and, and, and this type of thing. And uh, what happened is that the, um, the temple priests would eat some, or they would take some for their own income, but then they would take the remainder and they would sell it into the marketplace and the markets would just 
sell this stuff. And what happened as a result of all this is that the, the highest quality meat in town at the least expensive price wound up being this meat that was offered to idols. And the reason was is because the priest got it free. So they could um, sell it for a low price. It could be resold at a low, low price. And so uh, on top of that, they were, the meat was marketed. They used to put a little sign up uh, in, in these little stands or whatever, and which said, you know, this is meat that was offered to Aphrodite, whatever. So to make it more attractive. So everyone with me? So Christians would come along and, and see this. Hmm, this is really interesting. And there would be two reactions. The first was, wow, a dollar ninety-nine a pound. <laughs> I mean, the barbecue at my place tonight, the filet mignon is on me, you know, everyone come on out. And and but that was one group of people, and, and it's it's interesting, there's different personalities in the church, and and some of us are sort of a mixture of the two, but the second reaction was, wait a second, please. This meat was offered to a pagan god. It was offered to Satan. The the money that was given for this is is supporting pagan priests. Don't you ever, how could a Christian ever take it home and eat it? And so they were getting into arguments within the church in Corinth. And so this was a big problem. It was a real in-your-face, very real issues. There's any number of uh, similar issues that, that, that come up uh, in the church today. But, you know, some poor guy would be having a big old juicy shish kebab and, you know, someone else would come along and say, you know, you're eating evil, do you know that? And he's like, you know, this, this type of thing. Stephanie and Amy and Sue and Angelina, as we speak, they're driving down to Maryland to a pastor's conference. I remember, um, uh, uh, it's a pastor's wife's conference. I remember Stephanie went to one in, in central Florida. Now, what do they grow in central Florida? What's just everywhere, mile after mile? Oranges, that's right. She went to a, a pastor's wife's conference in central Florida one time. And I remember she was pregnant, and so she would carry food around wherever she went. And, and uh, she had these oranges. And these oranges, though, were from California. <laughs> now, California orange farmers in Florida, they're evil. <laughs> Those guys, they're, they're evil. And, and she, was, uh, she, was at, she was eating one of these, an orange slice, and, and this is no exaggeration, uh, two women came up to her very upset and said, do you know that you're eating oranges from California? And she's, you know, this type of thing. Yeah, you know, you need to support Florida farmers. They're struggling out there. And, and so, you know, and, and this type of thing happens in, in a million different forms. Uh, it, it really does. And, and things can get really nasty. And so they write this letter to Paul because this issue is tearing them up. And he responds, uh, middle of, of verse 1, he says, We know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. If anyone thinks he knows anything, he knows nothing, yet as he ought to know. 
But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols. California oranges. We know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other God but one. But even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God and Father of whom are all things, and we for him and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom, through whom are all things and through whom we live. However, there is not in everyone that knowledge. For some, with consciousness of the idol, until now eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak, is defiled. But food does not commend us to God, and neither if we eat it are we the better, nor if we do not eat it are we the worse. But beware lest somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. Okay, so what's he talking about here? Well, let's start from the beginning. Verse 1 again. We know that we have knowledge. So, what knowledge is he talking about? That there's one God. That uh, an idol is is nothing, he says there in um, in verse four that an idol is nothing that uh, eating uh, food that was offered to an idol uh, which is nothing is harmless verse eight he says but food does not commend us to God for neither if we eat or the better nor if we uh, do not eat are we the worse it, it makes no difference it's irrelevant we are free. To, to, to eat this thing, he says. So that settles it, right? We have that knowledge about, about who we are in Christ. We're free to eat this thing. Does that settle it? No, it doesn't. Here's the problem. Again, verse 7, he says, if there, however, there is not in everyone that knowledge. In other words, not everyone has gotten to that place where they really understand liberty. Remember what Paul said uh, early on in in 1 Corinthians. He said, everything is lawful, but not everything is beneficial. Do you know how few people really believe that? I mean, it is so radical. Everything is lawful, but not everything is beneficial. And so so few people really can accept that. And so... uh, what was going on here is that some people, again, it says in verse 7, who, who they had had so much, such a terrible past in these temples, these temples to idols. So many horrible memories. So, so much damage to their lives. The demonic oppression that had tormented them you know, in that season of their life. They simply could not understand and, and I hope that we can all relate to this. They simply could not understand that a Christian really does have the liberty to, t- to, to go to a, a market with a sign on it, meat offered to Aphrodite, buy it, and then eat it. They, 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 it had wreaked that whole thing. Aphrodite, whoever, had wreaked so much havoc in their lives. They, they, they just couldn't a- accept this. Again, verse 9, but beware lest some 
how this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. And so the, the word there, stumbling block, is a word there we have talked a lot about in other places. It's the word, in other places it's translated offend. It's, it's really, it's one of those Greek words that there's not a good word for word English word translation, a one-word English word uh, translation. What it really means, uh, again, it's the, words, uh, uh, the Greek word skandalizo, which we get to the word scandalize. What it really means is, is the, the idea is a person who is offended and, and, and they're offended in such a way that it causes them to stumble or even walk away from their faith. They're scandalized by what they see. And so the idea that Paul is getting at is this. If you do something which you know in your heart you have the freedom to do, but you know if a certain brother or sister witness you do it, and that they would be offended, and that it would cause them to possibly uh, stumble or fall down in their faith, then don't do it. So now that's the sort of a long interpretation. The short interpretation is this. It's not about you. Your life is not about you. Your life is about Christ. Your life is about Christ and Jesus Christ and the people that he died for. It's not about you. If you have to you know, give up something so that someone else's faith will remain intact or so that someone else's faith won't be harmed, if you have to give, up, give something up for that, you give it up. In Paul's letter to the Romans, 12, 17, he actually goes even much for, further. In verse 17, he says, be careful, what to do is, what, be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. That's the NIV translation. The uh, New King James says, have regard for good things in the sight of all men. So, how does that translate to where we are today? Well, if someone has a, a problem with ru- a lust... You know, don't give them a membership to, you know, Fanny's Flesh Farm Gym or whatever, you know. Don't do that. If they have a problem with eating, don't be like shoveling Godiva bonbons or truffles down your throat in front of them. If they have a problem with drugs and alcohol, don't drink around them. Now, I remember going to a, a wedding of a couple in a church, and it was an inner city church, and the whole church was invited, and the couple uh, had alcohol at their wedding, and a number of people, you know, everyone's sort of gathering in here, and there were a number of people in the church who had a history with drugs and alcohol, and there was this uh, one a woman who showed up at the wedding, she had had a long history of drugs and alcohol, had wreaked so much damage in her life, but she had been dry for quite some time. She was engaged to be married to another Christian guy. She had been growing in the Lord. She had been being blessed. She's tasting the salvation of the Lord, that it was good. But she shows up at this wedding, and, you know, there's a bunch of people in the church who were, who were drinking you know, maybe just a glass of this or that, whatever. And uh, and she figured, well, you know, I might as well just go along. And so she has a drink. 
and then she has another. And by the end of the night, she was smoking crack cocaine. Just as she just went back to the same people she knew. She just took such an incredible spiritual tailspin because of what another brother or sister in Christ refused to give up. Verse 10 says, For if anyone sees you who have knowledge uh, eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to an idol? And because of your knowledge, shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? Listen, but when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes any brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Now, am I saying here that, you know, you shouldn't go to the gym because there's too much exposed flesh there? No. Am I saying you should never bring a brother or sister in the Lord there? No. Am I saying that no more Godiva bonbons and truffles? No. Am I saying that you uh, should never uh, be allowed to have a glass of wine or, or a drink? Absolutely not. I'm not saying that. I'm not talking about rules. If you take that route, you will make 10,000 rules for your life and you will be crushed under the burden of them. I'm not talking about rules. I am talking about blessing people about blessing your brothers and sisters in Christ, about blessing that person who may be an unbeliever, who, who, who Christ died for. I'm talking about in whatever avenue we're in, wherever we are, in the elevator, at school, in the dorm, at work, wherever, how can I bless this person in front of me? It's not about rules. It's about being spirit Led and being very careful and exercising our discretion, our liberty with a lot of godly, Holy Spirit driven discretion. I was also reading, actually, this morning, John chapter 21. It's such a powerful story. The Apostle Peter, Peter had uh, denied Jesus three times after Jesus was arrested, after saying that, man, he was going to be the superstar. He was going to stay with uh, Jesus to the end. Denies him three times. When Mary uh, Magdalene went to the tomb, he was in hiding. She run, ran back and got him. But uh, that shows sort of where he was spiritually. He was in hiding and Jesus was resurrected from the dead. He meets uh, some of his disciples uh, on, on the beach. They were out fishing, and he brings them in. And Jesus asked Peter, he said, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. And then Jesus said again, Peter, do you love me? Peter said, yes, I do. I love you. And Jesus said, then tend to my sheep. Jesus asked again, Peter, do you love me? And he was hurt. And he said, Lord, you know I love you. You know all things. And Jesus said, 
feed my sheep. God restores us. He blesses us to feed his sheep, to tend to his sheep. It doesn't matter if you're a pastor or a pastor's wife or an elder, a deacon, whoever. You need to be tending. You need to be going about your life tending to the sheep of God, doing whatever in that circumstance. It's going to build them up. Love edifies. Knowledge puffs up. Love edifies. And, you know, the Lord, oh boy, did the Lord get me on this one very recently. Someone had done a number of things that were wrong. And I I had to confront them. It was a a good and right thing to confront them for what was going on. And I, you know, tried to do it in love, but, you know, I confronted them in the way I would confront your average person. For the the way that I would expect a normal person to be confronted. And the person was very hurt by the things that I said. And I spent a couple days just justifying in my own mind, well, I just treated her the way that I would basically treat anyone. And after a couple days, the Lord came in and, and he just convicted me so much. He said, Steve, she's not anyone. She's wounded. She's not anyone. She's much more fearful than anyone. She's much more insecure. She's got a much more gory past than anyone. And and I was just so, I was just so convicted. I just spent the day saying, Lord, why? I, I am just so low. I can't even believe I'm a pastor. It was just really getting, uh, you know, just praying to the Lord. And, and I went to bed and I woke up, and this type of stuff happens all the time. I wake up, I'm reading a, my devotional. It's written by a, a Puritan a few hundred years ago. And guess what the verse of the day was? 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. Love builds up. And you know what it said? This is not a lie. It said, you need to love people like God loves you, the weakest of all people. (laughs) (laughs) God is faithful to fashion us into the people he wants us to be. He will do that. So let's go back to verse 1 and, and 2 just for uh, another couple minutes. It, it says, I think, I'm hoping we'll uh, understand a lot more about this now. It says, we know that we have knowledge. What kind of knowledge? That there's one God, that the idols are nothing, that food offered to idols is harmless. But Paul says, knowledge puffs up. What does he mean by that? Knowledge has a terrible way of puffing us up with pride. You know, what happens when we start accumulating knowledge? This is part of the fall brothers and sisters. We start accumulating knowledge about God's word. So many times we get puffed up with pride. It's about my life in Christ, about my opinions, uh, about God's word, about my desires, about what God, uh, how I think God uh, wants things to be done. My wants, my needs, at whose expense? At the expense of everyone that's around me. And, and so, 
you know, if there's someone around me, you know, that, that's going to be sort of wounded by uh, eating meat that was offered to idols. Well, you know, I'm free in Christ. I'm no longer under the law. Uh, I am a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And I'm going to take a stand for truth. One of the most difficult things, uh, one of the most difficult things about dealing with a person who's filled with pride is that they think they're so spiritual. Uh, I'm going to stand for truth here, stand for righteousness, and, and I'm not going to let my freedom be hindered by someone who doesn't understand Christian freedom. Terrible things starts happening so oftentimes. When we become Christians, we start reading God's word, we start accumulating knowledge, we start falling in love with the idea that we are so knowledgeable about the things of God. And, and listen, here's the tragedy. We fall out of love with the very people around us we're supposed to be ministering to. And, and you know, we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, uh, 9, no eye has uh, seen, no ear has heard, no heart has experienced those things that, which God has prepared for those who love Him, but God has revealed them to us by His Spirit. And we read that, and we're like, praise God. You know, the Bible uh, says that, you know, I know now things that the Old Testament prophets didn't even know, that angels long to look into. And, you know, praise God for that. But listen, don't let your knowledge... Take a weird turn now. Turn you into a cactus. You know, cactus. Many fine points, but you sure don't want to hug it. (laughs) Have you become like that? Have you sort of gone off into solitude and, you know, you know, got your roots have gone real deep, and you're digging up, you know, the Word of God. But meanwhile, uh, your life is—it's a dry desert uh, place, and no one wants to be near you for fear of being pricked. So they just keep their distance. I heard a pastor tell the story of his mother. His mother attended his church. And I don't know if the fact that my mother is here this morning is a coincidence, but um, his mother attended his church, and uh, so he was her pastor, and uh, she got real ill, and she went to the hospital, and he stood uh, next to her bed, and he's looking down into her face, and all of a sudden, she opens her eyes. It's a true story. And the first thing she said was, get me Pastor Bill. And he's like, Mom, I'm Dave, Pastor Dave. And she said, uh, I know you're Pastor Dave. If I want to be taught something, I'll call for you. But I want to be comforted. Get me Pastor Bill. Ouch. No, please, Mom. If that ever happens to you, don't say, call on Pastor Scott. Please, he'll never let me, you know, he'll never let me live that down. But, but anyway, um, Verse 1 says, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies or builds up. And, and verse 2 says, if anyone uh, uh, thinks he knows anything, in other words, if anyone is building himself up with knowledge at someone else's expense, he knows nothing, yet as he ought to know. Verse 3 says, if anyone love, loves God, those, uh, if anyone uh, loves God, this one is known by him. 1 Corinthians 13, 2, what does it say? If I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, but have not love. I am nothing. So our ministry here at Calvary Chapel is centered around the teaching of God's Word. And you need to be built up in God's Word. We teach chapter by chapter, verse by verse, because we have learned that that is the best way to build someone up into a fruit-bearing man or woman of God.
You need to be built up in God's word. You need to increase in the knowledge of God. You need to know the doctrines uh, of, the, uh, of the church that is described in the word of God. You need theology. You, you, you need to be able to give an answer for your faith. But if what grows out of those things is anything other than love, love for God, love for his people, something is desperately wrong with your relationship with the Lord. So you may ask, well, Steve, give us an, a practical example of what this kind of uh, love looks like. Well, the uh, best example, as always, is the cross. Jesus died on the cross so that the weakest person who ever lived could obtain salvation freely. He died, he suffered, he had that spear thrust through his, uh, his body, and, uh, the uh, nails to his hands and, and feet, so that the weakest person among us could, could gain what they could have never done uh, in, in their own strength. Uh, and, you know, but I want to close with just a phenomenal example in the Old Testament of this. Really, really... Radical story. Know that word radical, overused sometimes, but this one's so heavy, a lot of people avoid it because it's just, it, the, the love that it demonstrates uh, in this story is, is so much higher than the love that we know or understand. 2 Kings chapter 5. Turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 5. About nine or ten books to the, starting from the beginning of the Bible. It's the story of Naaman. Naaman, the commander of the army of the king of Syria. Now, at this time, Israel was in full rebellion. And God was using the Syrians with this general, Naaman, to inflict discipline and punishment on them and chasten and judgment on them. And uh, he was using this man Naaman, but this guy was a leper. And one of the time, uh, at one time, the Syrians went out and, and brought back a captive, a, a young girl from the from Israel, and and she knew all about the prophet Elisha. And so Naaman had taken her into his home, and uh, she had suggested, "Well, look, you know, there's a prophet in Israel that could heal you of your leprosy." And so uh, they uh, sent. Uh, messengers to the king of, uh, of, of Israel. And uh, anyway, Elisha uh, heard about this and he called on the king of Israel and he said, well, send him to me. And so Naaman went to Elisha, the prophet, and Elisha told him, okay, Naaman, now go dip yourself in the Jordan River seven times. And at that point, it says that Naaman was furious. And he was like, what a ridiculous thing. He goes, you know, there, there's rivers uh, in my country that are just as good, actually much better than the Jordan River. Why should I do something like that? Well, he had some servants on his staff, and man, did they have some God-given wisdom. They said, now, come on. And this is had to take some courage, speaking with a general like this. And they're like, come on, Naaman. If he had asked you to do something difficult, 
to be healed of your leprosy. You would have done it. You would have climbed some mountain, you know, swam across some sea or whatever. Now he's asking you to do something very easy. Sounds a lot like the, the gospel, doesn't it? He's asking you to do something so simple. Why don't you just go do it? So Naaman goes to the Jordan. He dips himself in the uh, Jordan. And it says in verse 14, his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. And verse 15 says, and and he returned to the man of God. And by the way, not everyone does this when they're healed by God. Remember the ten lepers who were healed by Jesus? Only, what was it, one or two returned? Not everyone does this, but this man did this. He returned. He went to uh, the man of God, and he and all his aides, and came, verse 15, and stood before him, and he said, Indeed, now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Now, therefore, please take a gift from your servant. This guy, by the way, he has been, he has been saved. He's a child of God at this point. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in in a second. But he says in verse 16, But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive nothing. Uh, So Elisha doesn't want anything. And Jesus says, Freely I've given you, now you freely give. He doesn't uh, accept anything. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. So Naaman said, Then, if not, please let your servant be given two mule loads of earth, for your servant will no longer offer either burnt offering or sacrifices to other God, but to the Lord. So he believed that there was one Lord. We will see this man in heaven. And so but why does he ask for this uh, uh, two mule loads of earth? Well, it's because he was, this guy just a few hours ago had been a pagan. Knew nothing, he was like a Corinthian, knew nothing but idols and false gods. And the thing about it was, at that time, they believed that every deity was attached to the land, some piece of land. And he's like, well, I guess i got to bring back land, and i got to throw the, the, the dirt on the ground and worship uh, Jehovah on, on this mound of dirt. And so he asked to do that. And then in verse 18, it says, Yet in this thing may the Lord pardon your servant, when my master goes into the temple of Rimon to worship there, and he leans on my hand, and I bow down in the temple of Rimon, when I bow down in the temple of Rimon, may the Lord please pardon your servant in this thing? What a question. Now, everyone in here, in this room, I hope we have knowledge. I know how I would respond to this guy. Okay, now two things, Naaman. One, no, you're not going back with dirt. You don't worship God on a clod of dirt. You worship God anywhere. And two, of course, you cannot, never, bow down to the god Rimon. You can't do those things. What did Elijah tell him? Verse 19, not Elijah, Elisha. Then he said to him, go in peace. Wow. Doesn't mention a thing about that. Why? Because he knew about the love of God. He knew God wasn't going to allow this guy to stay in this place, but he also knew this guy was a weak, weak, weak newborn babe. 
And he didn't want to crush this beautiful new life. He didn't want to do that. And he knew when he went back and over time as the Lord is, is working this man's life, he would stop bowing down to Rimon and he would stop worshiping on a cloud of dirt. And that is a demonstration of, of what uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul is, is teaching about in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. God has always loved us like this. He accepts us just the way we are with all our sort of weird misconceptions of things, but he's not going to let us stay that way. But this is how he loves, and this is how we too, by the Spirit of God, need to love. And I was just thinking about this this morning, and I'm like, ooh, Lord, I need your grace. I need your grace to love like this. This is not me. It's, just, it's really hard to teach on a subject like this. because I, I, I don't feel qualified. We need God's grace. And that's, so that's why Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, he prays for the church. He knows they don't have that kind of love, and he prays in chapter 3 of, uh, it, in his letter to the, Corinthians, um, to the Ephesians, and he says, I pray that you may be filled with power, through his spirit in your inner man, that Christ would dwell in your heart through faith and that once rooted and established in Christ, you may understand how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. See, we do have the grace. He will give us the Holy Spirit and fill us with the Holy Spirit so we can love like Christ loves. So even as we're we're drawing near to Christ and we learn how he thinks, how he feels, how he ministers, that's how he wants us. He wants us treating others as, as the weakest of brethren, like he loves us. So let's pray. Father, we just thank you. We thank you for the cross. We, the weakest of children, Lord, the weakest of men, the weakest of women, who had no strength, to earn a relationship with you, to earn heaven, to earn righteousness. God, you gave us Jesus to make us, Lord, wretches. Your treasure. God, your word says we're your treasured possession, Lord. Oh, how you love, Lord. And oh, oh, how we want to love. We want to be a vessel, Lord, of your love. Fill us with power through your spirit in our inner man. In our inner, in, in, in our inner man that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith so the, we would understand how wide and long, high and deep is your love, Lord. Do that work in our lives. In Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, please rise. We'll close in with a worship song.